Turn in your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 9. For the sake of review, I just want to read a few verses beginning with verse 24 in Daniel chapter 9. Last week we talked about Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks of years as relates to God's plan and purpose for the nation of Israel. So we're looking at God's prophetic clock as relates to Israel. That prophetic clock merges with His prophetic clock as relates to the entire world in the book of Revelation. That's why I believe it's important for us to regress to Daniel at this point in the book of Revelation. We've started chapter 6. Chapter 6 begins the period of the tribulation, the time that God pours His wrath out upon planet earth in judgment for her iniquities. And a time when God and His wrath and judgments serves to wake up the nation of Israel so that they will recognize their Messiah when He comes the second time. He's already come once. He's already come once. And some Jewish people know this even though they refuse to embrace it. There was an elderly man at the Jewish rest home in Cape Town, South Africa that was speaking with Ricky sometime around the same time I was able to conduct that martial arts demonstration there for entertainment purposes. And after the martial arts demonstration, we offered free Hebrew and English Old Testaments to the residents, really nice hardback versions, very nice, as a free gift to them. And we also had some New Testaments. The Jewish people call this the Berit Hadashah, which is the New Testament or the New Covenant. And I think this elderly man mistakenly picked up a New Testament and then when he saw what it was, he gave it back and told Ricky, I cannot have this. But then he went on to say, we don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but when I read Isaiah 53, there's no other person that could be talking about but Jesus. So I'm just kind of like, what, why can't you put two and two together? But that's often the case. Christ has come once, He will come again. And at that time, Israel, those that doubt or wonder now, those that remain will wake up in that day. Paul describes it at that day as so all Israel will be saved. That doesn't mean every Jew ever born will be saved. It means the nation living at that time will have a national awakening, a sudden awakening, And if we want to see a picture of what that looks like, just look at Paul on the road to Damascus. He hated the followers of Jesus Christ. He was en route to persecute Christians in Syria. And then he was confronted with Christ and he immediately changed. That's a picture of what the nation will experience one day. So this period of tribulation is important. And from Revelation 6 on until chapter 19 when Christ returns at Armageddon, We're in that period. It's the prophecy of Daniel 9 that reveals to us the length of that period of tribulation. Jesus talks about the second half of the tribulation. The great tribulation. About three and a half or three and a half years, 42 months. He talks about this in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The book of Revelation focuses primarily on that last three and a half years. It's the book of Daniel in this prophecy that articulates the entire period, which is a seven year period. Okay, Revelation 6, the unleashing of Antichrist as one who brings peace, the opening of the first seal, coincides, I believe, with the beginning of this 70th week. And so let's just read this passage of scripture again. This is one of the most important prophecies in all of the scriptures. Because not only does it tell us when Messiah would come the first time, we can see that Jesus truly was Messiah according to this prophecy. It also predicts for us the current state of affairs we see with Israel as being scattered and persecuted all throughout history until now. It shows us the significance of its regathering into the land in 1948. And it tells us what we can expect in terms of the culmination of all things. And I believe 
that the church will be raptured out prior to the beginning of this 70th week. And we've discussed that through Revelation 2 and 3, chapter 4. I'm not going to get into that anymore. Verse 24. And I talked about the context of this passage last week. If you weren't here to hear the first part, it is online, available as an audio podcast. So I would encourage you to go listen to it. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and thy holy city. That word weeks means seven. Seventy-sevens in Hebrew. The context is clearly years. Seventy-sevens or seventy weeks of years, that's 490 years, are determined upon thy people and thy holy city. Daniel's people was Israel, his city was Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So these six things would be completed or transpired by the end of this 490 year period. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. So in other words, from the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince would be 483 years, 69 weeks of years. The street shall be built again, and the wall even in troublesome times. This 70 weeks is divided into three periods. The first one is seven weeks, 49 years. Verse 20, uh, the end of verse 25 tells us what would take place during that 49 years. The street will be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after three score and two weeks... In other words, after the first seven-week period and then after the 62-week period, which means after 69 weeks, 483 or, or 483 years, it's 490 years, the total 70 weeks. I misspoke a moment ago. But after three score and two weeks, which by default is 69 weeks of years, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And unto the end of the war, that is the war against the Jewish people, which in effect started in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the city and the sanctuary. Unto the end of the war there shall be desolations, or desolations are determined. So the world has been at war with the Jewish nation since 70 AD. And even before that. But when the Romans destroyed the city and the temple, the Jews were scattered and the world has been at war. And we're seeing that even today. Okay, I was reading an article this morning that was detailing some of the things that have transpired as our leaders have been meeting with Palestinian leaders and Israeli leaders to try to come up with some kind of peace plan. It always fails. But it was revealed that American officials have been telling the... Uh, um, the, the Israelis, that their nation is not like other nations. That the only reason they are a nation is because the UN proclaimed them a nation. And therefore, they need to do what the UN says. And that there is going to be a Palestinian state whether they like it or not. That's the position of our government with Israel. Something that's changed drastically. The Jews are a flashpoint in the world. Just like the Bible prophesied. It's that period of war. Unto the end, desolations against Israel, tribulation, trial are determined. Verse 27, and he, who is he? It's the prince that shall come in verse 26, shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So we have a seven week period, a 62 week period equals 69, and then we have a one week period which makes it 70. The total amount revealed in verse 24. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So the prince that shall come will have a, make a treaty with Israel that is to last for a week or 49 years. I mean, I'm sorry, seven years, not 49 years. And in the midst of the week, that means halfway through this seven-year treaty, he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. So in other words, there will be a temple. The Jews will have renewed their sacrifices. That might be a result of this treaty. And in the middle of that period... The prince that shall come, Antichrist, will cause the sacrifices to cease. 
And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. In other words, he will, as we learn elsewhere in Daniel, enter into the temple of God, cause the sacrifices to cease, and set himself up as God, desolating the temple and the worship of the Jewish people. Even until the consummation. So this desolation will begin in the middle of the 70th week, and it will last until the consummation. What is the consummation? It's revealed in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined to do those six things I talked about last week. Finish the transgression, make an end of sins, make reconciliation for iniquity at all. Everything written there. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So this prophecy God is giving Daniel, it's telling the history of the Jewish people from a commandment to build Jerusalem until the coming of Messiah. It's foretelling that history before it happens. And so as far as God's prophetic clock with regard to Israel is concerned, from a commandment given what I believe in Nehemiah's time until the end of days, there would be 490 years in which God would specifically be working with Israel. 483 of those years stretched from Nehemiah until the time of Christ. And then at the time of Christ, Messiah the Prince, God's prophetic clock with regard to Israel came to a stop. It grinded to a halt. And from that point on, God's primary activity has been with the church. What is the church? The bride of Christ. Israel is the adulterous wife of Jehovah. The church is the virgin bride of Christ. It's a mystery. The mystery of the church is Jew and Gentile together in one body. Something foreign in the Old Testament. Jew and Gentile together in one body as the bride of Christ, the chaste version. And God has a plan and purpose for the church. We've seen the church age laid out. History told before it's even transpired. Laid out in Revelation 2 and 3. At the end of the church age, God's prophetic clock with the church stops. The church is raptured. And then this prophetic clock that stopped at 483 years starts ticking again with regard to Israel. The time of Jacob's trouble. And it ticks and ticks for another seven years, bringing the 70 weeks to a conclusion. This is the prophecy. And so for us to better understand, if this is true, then we ought to be able to look at history and see fulfillment as regards the first 69 weeks. As I've laid this out, 69 are done, finished, complete. We're in the midst of a gap called the church age. The 70th week hasn't started. It starts at the time of Revelation 6, the unleashing of the first seal. We ought to be able to look at this prophecy and see that God fulfilled it exactly as He revealed it in terms of the first 483 years. And that's what I want to do for the next little while. I may finish it today, I may not. But I hope in looking at this, it will confirm your faith in the Scriptures. When God says something, He brings it to pass. It's not some vague prophecy like, the Quran contains, it's not some assertion that's unverifiable as we see time and time again in the Book of Mormon and the Hindu writings. God utters prophecy. In fact, in Isaiah, He challenges the people. And He says, look, I am He that tells the end from the beginning. I'm the one that can spell things out before they happen. Who else can do that? Can any of you do that? I challenge you. Can you do that? If you can, then don't listen to me. That's how God challenges Israel. I write the end from the beginning. And then I record it and prove it. And yet you want to question my authority. Yet you want to question my reliability. I'm paraphrasing, of course. But God can be trusted because He declares the end from the beginning. And that's what he's done here with the nation of Israel. I want to look for a moment at Persian history. Because this is going to tell us, we need to decide when did the 70 weeks begin? And when exactly did the 69th week end? That's what I want to look at. Have I totally confused everyone this morning? 
Okay? So I want to look at the beginning. When did this prophecy start? If, let's look at uh, Persian history for a moment. In 538 BC, the Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians, two different peoples that kind of intermarried and came together and were in alliance, they overthrew the Babylonian Empire. In 538 BC, Darius the Mede and some of the Persian army and the Median army, they overthrew the city of Babylon. It had been under siege. It's a great military exploit in history. It took place during Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar's feast. The Persians and the Medes literally rerouted the Euphrates River that flowed through the city. The Babylonians could have endured a siege for years. They had means to grow food within the city walls. They had a, 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 a water supply, a constant water supply of the Euphrates River. The Persians rerouted that river, snuck under the walls, and came up in the middle of the city during a drunken feast. Belshazzar was killed, and the Babylonian Empire fell. This was prophesied. Daniel was there when this happened. And Darius the Median took the kingdom. Okay, And Persia became the primary empire, the second of the great Gentile world kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream and as was prophesied in the book of Daniel, um, chapter 7, the four great beasts. And that took place in the first year of Belshazzar. But Darius the Mede was the one who took the kingdom. And in Daniel chapter 7, the Persian kingdom is described as a bear that's risen up on one side, okay? In the, per the medium Persian kingdom, the Persians eventually assimilated the Medes and became the, Medes and became the dominant faction. And so you had a dual faction alliance that was very quickly dominated by the Persian faction. And that's shown in that prophecy of the bear raised up on one side. One side becomes superior. Darius the Mede at the head of the armies took the kingdom. And he would have been in control for about two years. The Bible says he was made king. I believe that Darius the Mede was Cyaxerxes II, who was an uncle of King Cyrus, who was put in control of Babylon, while Cyrus and his armies were out conquering the outlying provinces. Following the appointment of Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Great became the king of the Persian Empire. And in 536 B.C., he issued a decree in fulfillment of prophecy that allowed the Jews under Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Mordecai also were in this original group, I believe, and they were allowed to return to the land of Israel and rebuild the temple. Cyrus gave a decree that the temple of God was to be rebuilt. This was in 536 B.C. in Cyrus's first year as the king of the Persian Empire. So he was the first king of the empire, the entire empire. Darius the Mede would have been a governor or a, a prince over the realm of Babylon. And so there was a transition period of about two years when the Persians were able to assimilate the primary authority over the Medes. In Isaiah chapter 44, 28, this is about 120 years before Cyrus' birth. God mentions Cyrus by name. That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. So in other words, God was going to use Cyrus to perform pleasure as relates to Israel. And then it says, even saying to Jerusalem, thou shalt be built and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. So Cyrus would start the process, just an instrument in the hand of God, whereby not only the foundation of the temples would be laid, of the temple would be laid, but Jerusalem would be rebuilt. Cyrus gave a decree for the temple to be rebuilt. And so he started that process. The decree to rebuild the city would come later. After Cyrus the Great, we have the Persian king Cambyses the second. Cyrus's reign was from 538. Or, I mean, I'm sorry, 536 to about 530 B.C. And then Cambyses would be um, from 530 to 522. After Cyrus gave the decree to rebuild the temple, the Jews under Zerubbabel returned and they began the process and it continued for some time. If you turn to the book of Ezra, 
I don't know if any of you all studied Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther this week. It would have kind of given you some background. But as the temple reconstruction began, the foundation was laid and the process begun. Then some adversaries tried to hinder the work. Okay? And we see that in Ezra chapter 4. Okay? The Jews appealed to this decree of Cyrus that gave them permission... But people tried to frustrate that purpose, it says in verse 5 of chapter 4, from the days of Cyrus until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Not Darius the Mede, but Darius the Persian. And then it says in verse 6, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, this Ahasuerus... And this Artaxerxes here in chapter 4, the same thing. These were titles given to Persian kings. And this is a reference to Cambyses. Cambyses is the Ahasuerus of the book of Ezra. He's not the Ahasuerus of the book of Esther. He's also Artaxerxes here. These are interchangeable terms. And basically what happened as a result of this political pressure, this Cambyses II ordered the Jews to cease and desist until he gave another commandment. It says in verse 21, Give you now commandment to cause these men to cease, and that the city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me. So the, the work was suspended. Cambyses never gave a, another commandment. He forgot about it. That's kind of the way it is with politicians. They put something on hold, and they say, Be patient with me, and I'll fix it, and they never do. Typical politics. There's no new work under the sun. Following the reign of this Cambyses is the Persian King Darius Hystaxes. This occurred from 521 to 486 BC. Okay? Darius Hystaspes is the Darius of Ezra chapter 6. And he is the Persian king of the book of Esther. Okay? The Persian king that acted to preserve the Jews. And the king that interacts with Ezra and the Jews in chapter 6. That is the same personage here. Darius Hystaspes. Okay? Ezra, and Ezra 6 in the book of Esther. In, Esther. in Ezra chapter 6... Time has gone by. There's not been a new decree given. The Jews began to continue their work. And so these adversaries send a letter to this King Darius and ask him to cause the work to cease. The Jews appeal and say, look, Cyrus gave this decree and the laws of the Medes and the Persians doesn't change. We're just obeying the king. And so Darius made a search of the historical records and found this decree of Cyrus. And as a result, he confirmed it and gave the Jews the permission to finish building their temple. Okay? This was in the days of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet. So Darius gave the people the permission to finish building what they started was the temple. This is in Ezra chapter 6. And it says at the end of the chapter, In this house, the temple was finished on the third day of the month Adar, which is in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Okay? So this would have been about uh, 516 B.C. Okay? The temple was destroyed 586 B.C. How many years between 586 and 516? 70. 70 years the Jews were without a temple. They were out of their land 70 years, 606 B.C., from the day that Daniel was carried captive until 536 B.C. when Cyrus gave them permission to return. So Jeremiah's prophecy that Daniel was studying here in chapter 9 was fulfilled with regard to the return of the remnant and the construction of the temple. Okay? Following this Darius Hystaxes, we have King Xerxes. King Xerxes I. He was king from 486 to 465 B.C. 
King Xerxes, I do not believe, is mentioned in Scripture. King Xerxes was the famous Persian king who was defeated by the Greeks at Salamis and Plataea. And as a result, the Persians were not able to conquer Europe. And Persia would decline, Greece would increase, and Western civilization would take foothold and influence the world until the present day. After Xerxes, we have King Artaxerxes. Longamanus is what he was called. He had some kind of physical deformity that caused his limbs to look very long and not symmetrical with his body. I forget what causes this. I read about it, but it escapes my mind. But he was called Artaxerxes Longamanus, and he reigned as sole king of Persia from 465 B.C. until 424 B.C. Okay? He gave a decree in his 20th year. You can read about this in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah went with the remnant in Cyrus's day, as did Ezra and Mordecai. Obviously, Mordecai, Ezra, and Nehemiah came back to Persia because they had duties, official duties. And so you see Mordecai in Persia in the book of Esther. You see Ezra returning back a second time. And you see Nehemiah as the king's cupbearer in chapter 2. The king mentioned in Nehemiah 2 is Artaxerxes Longamanus. Nehemiah is sad in his presence and the king asked why. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah in chapter 1 has been praying because he knows the temple has been rebuilt, but the city is laid waste. Jerusalem has not been rebuilt according to the prophecies. What's going on? And he began to cry and pray out, uh, cry out to the Lord and pray. And just like Daniel, he didn't blame the people for the sins. He included himself within that prayer in the first person. And he was praying and crying out to the Lord that, there, that the cup, that the city would be rebuilt. And it tells us at the end of chapter 1 that he was the king's cup bearer. The cupbearer would bring wine and drink to the king. He would often taste what was presented to the king to make sure it wasn't poisonous. And in the beginning of chapter 2, it came to pass in the month Nisan, that's the beginning of the Jewish religious year. Passover is the 14th day of Nisan. We just had that. In the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. Now I want you to remember this phrase, the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. Because we're going to need to try to figure out when was that exactly. Was it 20 years from 465 B.C. and therefore 445 B.C.? Or was it some other time? That wine was before him and I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not before time been sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, why is thy countenance sad? Bob talked about countenance this morning. Nehemiah's countenance was sad. It was written all over him. Seeing thou art not sick. This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid. And I said unto the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, not the temple, the city, the place of my father's sepulchres lieth waste and the gates thereof are consumed with fire. Then the king said unto me, For what are you making request? Or for what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Verse 5, And I said to the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldest send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And so we read the next few verses, and we see the king did give Nehemiah authority return. And then in verse 9, it says, Nehemiah came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. So in other words, he gave letters from the king, signed by the king, to the governors beyond the river so that they would understand the authority by which Nehemiah had been sent. So here in Nehemiah chapter 2, we have a commandment given by the Persian king to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 
We've got three commandments. The first one by Cyrus was given for the remnant to return and rebuild their temple. Cambyses put a stop to it temporarily. Darius reaffirmed Cyrus's decree and gave the people the permission to continue the work until the temple was complete. And then King Artaxerxes gave his command to Nehemiah in his 20th year that the city would be rebuilt. So we have three commandments given with regard to Jerusalem. Two of them are very clearly referencing the temple and the temple alone. The third one references the city. The beginning of this prophecy, this 70 weeks starts with a commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. People have, some have argued this is a reference to Cyrus's decree. Some have argued it's a reference to Darius's decree. And others argue it's a reference to Artaxerxes. These are separated far enough in time that the beginning point is very much important because it affects the ending of these 69 weeks and it tells us whether this prophecy was literal and can be trusted. It's very obvious to me that the decree mentioned in Daniel chapter 9 is this decree given in Nehemiah chapter 2. It references the city of Jerusalem. So the 69 weeks began in the 20th years, year of Artaxerxes. This was about 85 years after Daniel wrote down the prophecy in chapter 9. 85 years later, that prophetic clock started ticking. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem. That's the commandment given by Artaxerxes in Nehemiah chapter 2. There's an interesting side note here in Nehemiah 2 I want to mention. His countenance is sad before the king. The king recognizes it and wants to know what's wrong. And then Nehemiah says, well, how can I be happy? My city is laid waste. The gates are burned with fire and it's not been restored. And then the king says, what do you want me to do? And what does Nehemiah do in verse 4? The king asks a question. Before he answers it in verse 5, it says, So I prayed to the God of heaven. Nehemiah did not open his mouth until he prayed to the God of heaven. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Paul gives Christians a commandment in here that I think we all need to heed. Because many a time, as I've been in a situation, whether it be preaching on the streets, or on the mission field, or in a conflict, whereby I am required to open my mouth, I've often opened it before or without following the example. This subtle example given by Nehemiah. Read Romans chapter 12, verse 12. These are some things Paul is telling us to do. Verse 9, let love be without dissimulation. That's pretty important, something the church has forgotten today. Dissimulation is concealing the truth. Okay? Our love should not conceal the truth. And the message of love preached by churchianity today is all about concealing the truth so no one is offended. That's not love, that's hate according to Proverbs. I read a chick track this week called The Real Haters. I've never seen that one before. And it talks about those, the real haters are those that know the truth like Jonah but refuse to tell it to people because they're afraid of offending them. That's the real hater. The, world, the church has it backwards today. But anyway, verse 12, after giving some exhortation, says this, Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. What do you think is meant here by continuing instant in prayer? It means we need to be ready to pray and cry out to God at a moment's notice. Pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Does that mean we need to be kneeling in our corner 24 hours a day, never doing anything with our lives but kneeling and praying? No. It, it means everything we do ought to be covered by an attitude of prayer. Nothing is insignificant. I remember reading the journals of General Stonewall Jackson that took place during the, the, the Civil War. You know, even so, something as simple as kneeling down to drink water from a brook, he would pause and thank God for the water before he even drank it. He would pause to ask God to give him wisdom before he issued orders or before he caused his troops to move in battle. 
I think that's the example we have here of Nehemiah. He was asked a question. The answer he was to give had the risk of offending the king or wooing his support. So before, in those moments before he opened his mouth, he prayed to the God of heaven. That's what it is to be instant in prayer. And we need to be like that in our lives. Whether it comes to paying a bill, resolving a conflict, opening our mouth to share the gospel, opening our mouth to preach, taking a stand against unrighteousness. May we be those that pause and pray to the God of heaven. And then God gave Nehemiah the answer to reveal it to the king. And then the king complied and gave a commandment to fulfill what Nehemiah deserved. Just an interesting lesson there. Now, I'm going to show you later as we get into a little history that Artaxerxes' father, Xerxes, suffered a terrible defeat at the hands of the Greeks. And he became very depressed and he retired from public life and basically spent the remainder of his days in drunken orgies and parties and all of this. There is evidence that in 473 B.C., prior to his retiring to a life of ease in some other city, not even in the capital, he appointed his son Artaxerxes to rule from the throne in the Persian capital. This would have started in 473 B.C. And so from 473 to 465, there was what's called a co-regency. Two kings at once. Xerxes was officially the king. He wasn't dead, but he didn't care anymore about the politics. His son was placed on the throne to handle the politics and to act with authority. And so, depending upon which aspect of Artaxerxes' reign we look at is going to affect what year this 70 weeks prophecy began. Did it begin in 445 B.C.? Or in the 20th year, which is inclusive, would it have begun in 454 B.C.? Okay? So we're talking about a period of about 11 years. And that doesn't seem very important. But if God's prophecies are exact, it is important. So I want you to keep this in the back of your mind. I believe the 20th year of Artaxerxes, as far as the Jews would have been concerned, would have dated from the time they would have had their dealings with him. And those dealings would have started at the beginning of this co-regency because Xerxes retired from the political side of it. Okay? It's kind of like in a church sometimes when the pastor's getting ready to retire, they appoint somebody to take over his duties and he kind of sits in the back. And that's not the way it should be in the church, but that's the way it is. And so people view the one that's been put in that place of authority as the pastor, whereas the pastor's the pastor emeritus. It's the same thing. So I believe this 20th year or the beginning of Daniel's prophecy would have started in 454 B.C. Now that's not in agreement with typical conservative scholarship. That's not in agreement with what I was taught in seminary by conservative Bible-believing professors. However, I think the typical conservative explanation as to how this prophecy was fulfilled is wrong. Because it makes the scriptures say something it doesn't say. And it takes away the preciseness of the prophecy. I believe that in 454 B.C., if you want me to be exact, starting from the day of Passover, the 14th of Nisan, in 454 B.C., that command was given. It doesn't tell us in Nehemiah which day of the month Nisan. But I'll show you later how we know which day it was, the Passover. That explains why Nehemiah was sad. It was the Passover. 14th of Nisan, 454 B.C., the prophetic clock stopped, started ticking. The 10th of Nisan, 30 A.D., it stopped. What happened on the 10th of Nisan, 30 A.D.? Anybody know? You know what happened on the Passover in 30 A.D.? Jesus died on the cross. What would have happened the 10th of Nisan prior to that? The triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Palm Sunday. What did the people cry out to Jesus as he rode into the city of Jerusalem in fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Zechariah on a cult? The son of David. 
The Bible talks about in that prophecy, your king comes riding on a colt. In that brief moment, if the people had been silent, the rocks would have cried out. But in that brief moment, the people recognized the Messiah as the prince. The only time in his ministry when the people as a whole recognized him as the prince. From the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah the prince, 69 weeks, 483 years. I'm going to show you how 483 years exactly lasted from this decree until not only the triumphal entry. 483 solar years, but also calendar years. It tells us that after 69 weeks, Messiah would be cut off. The crucifixion was precisely after the completion of 69 weeks. But that gives you a little historic context in terms of Persian kings and where we're at. So we're we're focused on this Artaxerxes during the time of Nehemiah and his decree in his 20th year as the beginning, or as it would say in Latin, the terminus a quo of this prophecy. But I want to back up for a minute. Let's look at what is considered the typical conservative interpretation of this prophecy. And it's a nice explanation, and the men who had the, the man who put it together was a genius, wrote some great books about prophecy and about the Antichrist. The men who have believed it and taught it, many fear the Lord and take the Bible to be literal. Believe in, in terms of eschatology the way that I'm teaching you here. I just think it's not correct, and I think there's a better explanation. There was a man by the name of Sir Robert Anderson. Okay? He was an expert in criminal investigation. He was converted and became a Christian at age 19 during the Irish Revival. And from 1888 to 1896, he was the chief of criminal investigation in Scotland Yard in London. Anderson wrote 17 books. One of his most famous was written in 1852. It was called The Coming Prince. And in that book, he talked about Antichrist. Coming Prince was making reference to what's said in Daniel 9, the prince that shall come. And in this work, The Coming Prince, Anderson lays out what he believes to be the fulfillment of the 70 weeks. And Anderson begins... The 69 weeks from 445 B.C., the 20th year of Artaxerxes in terms of his soul reign. So it doesn't take into consideration the co-regency. And Anderson's interpretation is basically the standard conservative interpretation in terms of how the 69 weeks were fulfilled. Artaxerxes was a sole king over the Persian Empire from 465 to 424. Remember, Artaxerxes and Ahasuerus were titles that were interchangeable. So Ahasuerus was King Darius in the book of Esther. Ahasuerus in in Ezra chapter 4 was Cambyses. Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 4 was Cambyses. But Artaxerxes in Nehemiah was Longamanus. So don't get confused there. It's just like we say president. If, I'm, if I use the term the president, and I'm talking about the president of the United States, I could be referring to George Washington. I could be referring to Barack Obama. It depends on the context. It's nothing strange there. 465 to 424, so his 20th year would have been 445 B.C. Now, 69 weeks of years times 7 equals 483 years. So the 69 weeks would be 483 total years. 483 years from 445, remember the 20th year, would bring you to AD 39 inclusively. Remember there is no year zero. There is no year from 1 BC to year zero and year zero to 1 AD. 1 BC goes straight to 1 AD. You guys understand that, right? Okay. So this means 483 solar years would put us at AD 39. Now, This is close enough in time, Anderson argued, to the time of Christ. It's close enough that he believed the prophecy was not an approximation. It needed to be exact. 
I agree with that. This is close enough in time to Christ, Messiah the Prince, just a few years, that something exact is going on. This is not a general fulfillment. And so Anderson had that conviction, and he decided to try to figure out how it was fulfilled exactly. But we have a problem because 39 AD is after Christ. And so this amount of days goes beyond the time of Christ. 39 AD is too late. I mean, there's plenty of historic evidence to show us that Christ, number one, was probably born 4 BC, but His crucifixion, death, and burial, and resurrection would have been prior, clearly prior to AD 39. So we've got a bit of a problem. So how did Anderson reconcile this? He came up with what he believed to be prophetic years of 360 days. He called 360 days a prophetic year. 12 months times 30 days each gives you 360 days. A prophetic year of 360 days to try to reconcile this prophecy. Now, in Genesis chapter 7 and 8, when Noah is in the ark, we're told that five months was 150 days. So that's five months at 30 days each. In our calendar, we don't have five months in a row that are 30 days each. So there's a reference to this 360-day year. In Revelation chapter 12, 1260 days equal three and a half years equal 42 months. So we have this 360-day year again subtly referred to. So because of this reference in Genesis and Revelation, Anderson thought, well, these 483 years must be prophetic years, not literal solar years of 365.242, whatever the decibels are. So this is what he decided to do. 483 times 360 equals 173,880 days. Okay? Then what we'll do is we'll take 173,880 and we'll divide it by a mean solar year, which is 365.24299. That's the exact year in terms of the Earth's rotation around the sun. 365.242199. Okay? So you take this number of days in terms of prophetic years, you divide it by a solar year, and what you come up with is 476.06 actual solar years. Okay? Now, we know that Nehemiah's, I mean, King Artaxerxes gave the decree. In the month of Nisan, Anderson assumes this was the 20th year of his sole reign, and he assumes that the date was the first of Nisan. Okay? So, that being the case, in 445 BC, this would have been March 14th, 445 BC, would have been the first of Nisan. He believes that the decree was given, and then he believes that. The triumphal entry of Christ would have been on the 10th of Nisan, which is true. It would have been Palm Sunday, the day before Passover. And in A.D. 32, this would have been April 6th. A.D. 32. And so he he sees that when we come up with these dates, by the application of these years and this calculation with the 360-day year, we have a prophecy that started in 445 B.C. on March 14th and it ended on April 6th, A.D. 32, which would have been a Sunday, Palm Sunday. How does he come up with this? Well, 476 would be the number of solar years. That is equal to 483 prophetic years. So the way he comes up with this solution is that 476... And again, you have to round down because this 476 is not accurate. Times 365 gives you how many days? It gives you 173,740 days. Okay? The first of Nisan, March 14th, 
to the 10th of Nisan, April 6, would have been 24 extra days. So you have to add 24 days. Okay? So you've got the years, and then one would have started 314. This is an assumption. And then this would have been Palm Sunday, or what he says is 10 Nisan, 80-32. So from March 14th to April 6th is 24 days. You have to add that. And then, between 445 B.C. and A.D. 32, there were 119 leap years. Okay? When is a leap year in our calendar? Every four years. How do, what happens every fourth year? We add a day in February. So there's an extra day. Okay? What happens in a leap year that ends in double zero but it's not divisible by 400. 1900. Was 1900 a leap year? No, what happens in a leap year? 1900 would have been a leap year according to every four years. But 1900 was a year that ended in double zero, not divisible by 400. Was 1900 a leap year? Was 2000 a leap year? Okay, if it's divisible by 400, it's a leap year. 1900's not. It ended in double zero, it's divided by four, but it's not divided by 400. So it's not a leap year. Well, between 445 B.C. and A.D. 32, you had B.C. 300, you had B.C. 200, and you had B.C. 100. Okay? These are not divisible by 400, so they would have been, or they would not have been leap years. So, 119 leap years, three of them would not have been leap years, so you have to subtract three days, and so you have to add another 116 days, not 119. There wasn't 119 extra days because these years weren't divided by 400. Divisible. So you have 116 extra days to account for the leap years. And what happens is you get this number. 173 is 880 days. What does that equal? That equals the number of days in 483 prophetic years. And so Anderson said, okay, 483 prophetic years is the same number of days as 476 solar years Add the 24 days between these two dates, considering the leap years. So the fulfillment must have been in A.D. 32 when Christ came into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And that put, put us right at the year that is commonly accepted as the death of Christ, A.D. 32. Okay? So this prophetic year gives us an interpretation which on the surface shows an exact fulfillment of this prophecy. So Anderson's conclusion was that 69 weeks were fulfilled to the very day in prophetic years. Wow, that's interesting. I used to believe this was the case. You know, there's a case that can be made, maybe we're talking about prophetic years, but it's kind of funny because in other places that deals with shorter periods of time as regards the nation of Israel, it doesn't seem to be talking about prophetic years. And Israel's calendar was not governed by a year of 360. It was governed by the sun. So this is your standard conservative interpretation that could be used to show exact fulfillment of prophecy. But I believe there's a better way to do it. I believe there's a way in which it's more precise and in which we can rest God's word to be exact. Now, there's some problems with this interpretation. And I may or may not get into this today. I feel like this is a seminary class, man. It's supposed to be a church service. It's supposed to be a church service dealing with simple truths for the common man to ponder. But you guys are smart, so I thought we'd be a seminary in here today. There are three pr problems with this interpretation. The first one is the 360-day prophetic year. There's a problem with this. I believe. The second one, the second problem is the 116 leap years. There's a problem with that. 
the rule in our calendar which states that every year ending in double zero, not divisible by 400, is not a leap year, that rule didn't start until we put the Gregorian calendar into effect. From Julius Caesar, B.C. 45, until the time of Pope Gregory, which was 1582, the world used the Julian calendar. The Julian calendar didn't have that rule. There was no rule. It was just a leap year every four years. Okay? So you can't take a Gregorian calendar rule that didn't start until 1582 and apply it to a time period that took place before that. So there's a problem there. And then finally, there's a problem, I believe, with dating the 20th year of Artaxerxes to 445 B.C. I believe we have to keep in mind the co-regency. And so these are problems that show us there must be another conclusion. But even in these problems, there's some interesting things for us to consider. The 70 weeks prophecy was given to the Jews so that they would know the time of Messiah's visitation. That's very clear. It was specifically spelled out so God's people would know when Messiah came. They missed Him. But some didn't. Joseph of Arimathea is described in Luke 23 as one who waited for the kingdom of God. He knew Messiah had come. What were the people waiting in the temple? Simeon, Anna, Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, others. They knew the time of Messiah's visitation. Why? Because this prophecy was there. Those weeks were given so the Jews would know. Now the book of Revelation that uses a 360 day year was not written until A.D. 90. The Jews in Jesus' day would have not understood a prophetic year because from Abraham until the time of Christ, the Jews organized their calendar based upon a solar year. It was a lunar calendar, but it was based upon a solar year of 365.242199 days per year. And this is how we know this. The Jewish calendar has 12 months normally. But... Occasionally, a 13th month is added between the 11th and 12th month. Okay, So you have the month Shavat, the 11th month in the Hebrew calendar, followed by the month Adar, the 12th month. Occasionally, however, you'll have Shavat, and they add a 13th month, Adar 1, followed by Adar 2. Okay, So you have an extra month added. This takes place in a 19-year cycle on the 3rd, 6th, 8th, 11th, 14th, 17th, and 19th years, an extra month is added. That proves that they were judging the calendar based upon the sun. If you just put a lunar calendar in effect, and you have 30-day months, 12 each year, what's going to happen after enough time in terms of the seasons? Is winter going to be in December? No. It starts messing up. The Jews used to look at the barley and the ripening of the the, the crops in the spring to tell them when they needed to throw that 13th month in there because things would start falling behind. If there's 365.242199 days in a year, but the lunar calendar only allows a consistent 360 days, you have a five-day drift every year. So in six years, you got a 30-day drift so the, the months aren't lined up with the seasons. They were basing it on a solar calendar because are proved by the addition of this 13th month. And that would always bring the drift of the seasons back into line, generally speaking. I believe there's a reference in the time of Noah to a five-month period equals 150 days. There's a reference to a 360-day calendar year in the time of Noah. Here's what I believe. I believe when God created the world, He created the earth to operate on a 360-day calendar. A year would have been 360 days, not the present rate. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say this before we proceed. I'm very intrigued with what science calls the geocentric model of the universe. It's the idea that the earth is at the center of the universe, the sun, the planets, and the stars rotate around the earth, not the earth rotates around the sun heliocentric model. Please understand that there's a geocentric model of the universe and a heliocentric model. We laugh at the 
idea that the earth is the center of the universe and think of that as medieval, dark ages theology that has no scientific basis, but there is some scientific basis. Go do a little reading on that. If the earth is rotating on an axis around, as it goes around the sun, certain things should happen that we don't see happening. There are certain things that should happen at the equator and at the North Pole that are different. There are certain things that should happen when planes try to fly around the earth that don't happen. It's pretty interesting. I'm not going to take a position there. We're going to assume that the earth rotates around the sun. I'm not even going to go there. That's something totally different. But it is intriguing. Go look up some stuff on that. Science doesn't have all the answers. We think we know everything and we don't. Anyway, that's a total different um, topic. But I believe that the 360 degree a day year mentioned in Noah's time was an actual year. It wasn't a prophetic year. It was actual. That God created everything in order. What did the earth have above it when God created it that we do not have today? A firmament, a canopy. It was like a greenhouse effect. I believe the continents were all one. I believe you had a consistent climate. When the flood came, it says it rained for 40 days and 40 nights and the fountains of the deep came up. That would explain the overwhelming amount of water. When we think of rain today, that's not the type of rain that fell in Noah's day. In Noah's day, that canopy of water, that firmament would have literally fallen. It would have dropped vast amounts of water upon the earth and it would have came crashing down. The earth, which rotated at 360 days per year around the sun, would have seen this massive canopy come crashing down toward the surface of the earth. And so in, in, in the shape of a sphere, the force would have projected inward toward the core. What happens? Who watches figure skating? Has anybody watched figure skating in the Winter Olympics? If a figure skater is spinning and his arms are outstretched and his leg is out, what does he do to increase his speed? Pulls it in. What would have happened to the speed of the earth if a giant canopy had been pulled in and dropped downward to the center of gravity? Would have increased the speed. I believe when that canopy fell, an orderly rotation of the earth was affected. The earth sped up its axis to a to an irregular number and threw everything out of order. And it's continued that way ever since. Science shows us that the earth has been gradually slowing down. And this has been measured for years and it's said that 0.005 seconds per year, the earth slows down. This has been measured for quite some time. If that is true... That since the flood, the day of an earth, an earth day would have decreased by 22 seconds. So our day would be 22 seconds shorter than what it would have been when that canopy crashed down. So the canopy crashed down, sped up the earth, and it's slowly spinning back to what it was originally appointed to be. The proof that this is true is that on December 31st, 1972, world leaders decided to add a leap second to the world clocks, an international agreement. Starting in 1972, every December 31st, a leap second is added to the world's atomic clocks. So that proves that the earth is slowing down or they wouldn't have to add a second. Now, if we had a 4.6 billion year old earth, as the evolutionist would claim, the evolutionist is not a scientist, he's a philosopher, a godless philosopher. Let's apply this 0.05 seconds that's been monitored for years. Let's backwards extrapolate it. What would have happened 400.6 billion years ago? Well, the earth would have had a 631 day year. Okay? It would have been spinning more, you know, almost double what it is now. What would that mean? Well... The centrifugal force would have increased. The continents would have been pushed toward the equator and the earth would have been flattened toward the shape of a pancake. Today, the earth travels about a thousand miles as it's at its equator. Okay? 
If we backwards extrapolate to an earth, the age that the scientist or the evolutionist claims, just on this rate alone, the earth would have been traveling more than double the speed it is now. And things would look very different. So that's another subtle evidence that the earth can't be as old as the evolutionist claims. But the earth is slowing down and I believe the actual 360 day year mentioned in Genesis was altered to where our earth has been rotating at 365.242 whatever every year and it's slowing down ever so slightly. 22 second difference between the day of the flood about 2300 B.C. and today. So there's a problem with this 360-day prophetic year. Genesis wasn't referring to prophetic years. It was referring to actual years. And there's a reason why we don't have 360-day years today. A very logical explanation in terms of what happened during the flood. So in my opinion, this does not work. So Anderson's conclusion is starting to fall apart. His conviction that the prophecy was fulfilled exactly, a conviction that many who pass on this explanation believe, just as I do, was sound, but his explanation, I believe, was off. I'm going to stop here today. This is a bad place to end the message. I'm very sorry, but there's some very interesting things that when put together, we're going to see God fulfills His prophecies exact. And if we know it to be precise where 69 of Daniel's 70 weeks are concerned, we can rest that the 70th is exact and precise. We can rest that what is foretold in Revelation with the seals and the vials and the trumpet judgments are literal and exact, not some mystical story. Anybody have any questions? I'm sorry to make this a seminary class. And um, I hope I have not confused you. But these are interesting things to think about.